On this episode of EHS on Tap, Step to it, what you need to know about OSHA's walking, working surfaces rule. We address the Occupational Health and Safety Administration's recent rulemaking on walking, working surfaces and how the rule aims to prevent slips, trips, and falls in the workplace. Today we're speaking with attorney Adele Abrams. Adele heads a nine-attorney firm that represents employers and contractors nationwide in OSHA and MSHA litigation and provides safety and health training, auditing, and consultation services. She's a certified mine safety professional and a Department of Labor approved trainer. Ms. Abrams is on the adjunct faculty of Catholic University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches employment and labor law. Ms. Abrams is also a professional member of the American Society of Safety Engineers and is a co-author of several safety-related textbooks. She is chair of the National Safety Council's Business and Industry Division Committee on Regulatory and Legal Affairs. Welcome back to the podcast today, Adele. Well, thank you. It is wonderful to be here. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about OSHA's new rule that heightens the requirements to protect workers against slips, trips, and falls, which are the leading causes of serious work-related injuries and even some deaths. So this rule is slated to go into effect January 17th, Uh, of the new year, 2017. This rule will impact quite a significant number of folks. Before we're going to get into the depths of this new rule, I have to start with an issue that is on many minds, which is the, the incoming presidential administration. So despite a congressional request that agencies not move forward with new regulations during the, the transition to the Trump administration, OSHA has issued this massive final rule updating and revising the walking working services rule. Some have suggested that Congress may seek to overturn these changes using their powers under the Congressional Review Act. So do you think, Adele, that this is likely? Well, it's an interesting question, and if it were any other rule than this, I would say that undoubtedly Congress would use the Congressional Review Act to rescind the rule, much like they did with the midnight rule of the Bill Clinton administration, which was OSHA's ergonomic standard. But this is a a big mallet. You have to understand, this is not a tool to be used lightly. And in fact, it has only been used once in the history of the world, and that was for the OSHA ergonomic standard, and that was, you know, at, at this point... Uh, so many years ago. Um, So in various changes of administration since then, uh, Congress refrained from doing it. And the reason I say that this is is a rule that they might not use it for is because, frankly, in so many ways, uh, as we'll discuss, this is a very positive rule for employers. Uh, It gives them uh, astounding uh, flexibility compared with the current rule, and it's going to eliminate an awful lot of citations from being issued. It's going to eliminate the need for a lot of variances to be uh, sought by employers. Um, and it's been pretty generous in terms of its grandfathering provisions, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So the problem is this, not to you know, be all lawyery here, but um, <laughs> under the Congressional Review Act, yes, it is timely enough um, in terms of when this was released, that Congress could rescind it. The problem is, if Congress uses the Congressional Review Act, it bars the agency from ever promulgating another rule on the same subject that is substantially similar to the rule that is rescinded. 
And so that means all of the updates that they've done in terms of fall protection systems, specifications uh, that align more with new national consensus standards and the like, uh, and that flexibility to get away from guardrails and be able to use uh, personal fall arrest systems in a, a variety of applications. Uh, OSHA would not be allowed to uh, pass a new rule uh, giving that flexibility. So really, the employer community would be shooting themselves in the foot, in my view, if they lobbied for Congress to rescind this rule, uh, because they'd be stuck with a rule that is benchmarked to pre-1971 consensus standards. Right. That's a, that's a great response. So most likely, hopefully, that uh, the Congressional Review Act will not come into play, and Congress will do the right thing and, and let this rule go forward. All right. So if I, if I can if I can double dip on that just for a moment, the one thing I did want to mention is that because your question was specific to the Congressional Review Act, I think it's unlikely that that will occur that they will try to rescind it. However, because the implementation date of this is coming up so quickly, and in fact will occur even before the uh, inauguration, um, I could see a situation where when they attack the uh, Department of Labor spending bills, uh, that they might put a a rider on appropriations funding prohibiting OSHA from enforcing this rule for a period of time, maybe kick it out uh, into uh, 2018 or something. So delay and uh, and 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 prevent some enforcement. I I foresee that with a lot of uh, EPA and OSHA regulations under the new Trump administration. Okay, so Adele, I want to ask you some some more intricate uh, questions, uh, getting into some of the the depths of this new rule. So the final rule aligns fall protection requirements in the general industry with those for uh, for construction. So why was this necessary for OSHA to do to protect workers in the general industry? Well, quite frankly, the construction rules are both more flexible and they also are benchmarked to current technology that's available. Um, As I mentioned already, uh, uh, the current OSHA standards were written and benchmarked to pre-1971 ANSI standards uh, and other consensus standards. And this rulemaking has been going on for an extended period of time. It started in 1990. Then they withdrew the rule. Uh, They reopened it for comment in 2003. Then they withdrew the rule put out a revised proposed rule in 2010, and that is the rule that, for the most part, they have finalized uh, and is taking effect here. So this has been going on for an extended period of time with a lot of comment. And the reason it's it's necessary is because the current rule um, that OSHA can enforce is benchmarked to outdated technology. For example, it talks about, you know, uh, the use of body belts. Well, Everybody knows now you don't put workers in body belts because they can kill the worker. They can do so much internal damage. Now we have harness and lanyard systems, and there's retractable lanyards. There's a lot of, uh, you know, really good technology out there, systems that relieve stress on the legs of workers. And so the new rule has a lot of these specifications, and it's going to be much more protective of workers. But as I said, um, in the old rule, you pretty much had to get to protecting workers only by the use of guardrails or some kind of railing system, temporary uh, railing systems. And these were were heavy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They caused ergonomic injuries to be toting around, especially to movable work sites. 
Um, and a lot of times, frankly, they just weren't effective. They weren't put in place. If they were removed for a reason for maintenance, they weren't put back in in a sturdy manner, and workers would rely on them and fall to their death. Um, now, a lot of the things in the new rule um, are carried over from, from the, the current standards, uh, things like covering holes in, in walking surfaces, for example. But the ladder specifications, scaffold specifications, uh, are all now, and the fall, personal fall uh, protection system specifications are all now aligned between general industry and construction. Right. The one place that they did not harmonize, and I think it's kind of a shame, is on the trigger height, because construction, it's six feet for most purposes. Um, they have higher heights for structural steel erection, but for most fall, fall protection requirements in construction, it's six foot. And general industry is four feet. And so they made everything in sync with construction except for changing that. So you, I don't want anybody to be confused and think that in, in coming in harmony with construction, it means you now don't need fall protection until six feet. It's not true. You, you still need to have some kind of fall protection system, railing, guardrails, uh, or personal fall arrest systems, uh, travel restraints. There, they, there's a lot of different options, designated areas. Uh, that you have under this rule, um, but they kick in at four feet, and even at, at lower heights, if you're working above moving machinery or dangerous uh, uh, attribute uh, areas like uncapped rebar, for example. Right. Right. Um, you mentioned guardrails, and I want to touch on this issue uh, a little bit more. So the final rule does away with the existing mandate to use guardrails as a primary method of fall protection and gives employers more flexibility in selecting their own fall protection for the specific situation. So how does this um, provide more protection to workers by getting rid of guardrails as the primary method? Well, first of all, they haven't gotten rid of guardrails. You can still use them. Okay. Um, you you still, there's a, a lot in this rule. I mean, if we had hours, right. I'd take hours on it. <laughs> but, you know, you have to inspect every walking working area. Uh, you're going to have to regularly and as necessary, you're going to have to inspect ladders before you use every shift. So there's documentation. There's training requirements. So it goes well beyond the flexibility of getting away from having to have guardrails. You're going to have to have qualified persons overseeing repairs of any uh, walking and working surfaces uh, where the repair involves structural integrity. Um, there's a whole host of ladder requirements now, including a grandfathered phase-in uh, for fixed ladders. And, you know, anything that's installed basically before January 17, 2017, is going to be grandfathered until such time as it's replaced, or in the case of fixed ladders, they have 20 years for it. Um, but, at, you know, after the effective date of this rule, which is coming right up, um, you're going to have to buy ladders or install new ladders uh, that meet the specifications. So that's going to be more protective of workers. They've got uh, new requirements in there for things like manhole steps and for dock boards that are used, you know, on, on uh, warehousing and loading dock areas. Uh, to protect workers uh, from being on one of those things and having the uh, transport vehicle take off on you. So there's really going to be a, a lot of new protections in here. Mm -hmm. um, but So it's not just getting away from the guardrails, as I said. Right. Um, but they're going to allow you to use a mix or, or one system, if that's all you need, safety net systems, 
designated areas for, for certain um, types of, of fall hazards, um, cages, wells, you know, other types of platforms. As I said, the updated scaffold specifications now are going to be in alignment uh, with the construction rule. So there is really a lot there that will protect workers. Right. So there's also a lot of questions around uh, surrounding the the grandfathering of of some of uh, of the regulations requirements. I do have one follow up question on the fixed ladders. OSHA has said that fixed ladders that are over 24 feet um, have 20 years to comply, like you mentioned. So why why is OSHA giving employers such a long term to come in and install ladder safety systems and personal fall arrest systems for these? fixed ladders over 24 feet? Well, it's not only the grandfathering. There's even certain types of fixed ladders, for example, that are, are installed by equipment manufacturers that are exempted from this uh, uh, in total. So uh, they, they were very responsive, I think, to the comments that they got. And yeah. again, remember, this was a comment period that ran from you know, <laughs> 2000, excuse me, from 1990 all the way to 2011 or so. So they heard from a lot of people, and I think on the fixed ladders, what they want to do is phase out the cages and the well systems. But they realize that a lot of these ladders are very, very tall. They're in, you know, hard-to-access areas, Mm -hmm. obviously. They might be in smokestacks or chimneys, for example. Um, You know, they might be on – they've already updated a lot of the requirements for communication towers and, and things of that nature. So there's been some incremental improvements already. And the, the expense and the feasibility, uh, technical feasibility issues that I think were raised by a lot of the commenters resonated with OSHA. So what they right. said is that, you know, as long as you've got, um, a co- you know, one of a certain type of protections on these, um, you know, wh- whether it be a cage, a well, or you can install the personal fall protection systems, um, that's all fine. Now down the road um, as you replace either a ladder or a fixed ladder we're talking about now or a component Mm -hmm. of a ladder then they would expect you to update it so that it would uh, meet the the requirements of the standard in terms of its design specifications Um, but they realize again you know these things are it's not like a little ladder that a painter would use that you can go down to the hardware store and buy one for a couple of hundred dollars. Right, these, these are can huge. Cost tens of thousands of dollars to install on some of these unique configurations. So by giving them 20 years, as long as it has a functional cage or a well, you know they're they're dealing with the economic realities of the situation. Right. But the the word is out there for employers that as you replace a component of a fixed ladder or you install a new fixed ladder or replace the thing entirely, it's going to have to now meet the new specifications of having the personal fall protection systems. Great. Thanks, Adele, for clarifying that a little bit. So I have another question that deals with non-conventional fall protection. And um, the rule mentions uh, an example such as establishing a designated area with a warning line, for example, on low slope roofs. So can this method of establishing a designated area be used for other fall hazard areas? You know, that's an interesting question, and it was something that I looked into a bit. When you go through this 513-page Federal (laughs) Register, which is a lot of text. some light reading. Yeah, a little, little light reading. The only place that they talk about designated areas being available 
is with respect to low slope roofs. So if you're doing residential roofing work or you're on, you know, a fairly flat roof, um, you know, of a commercial building, you're going to have this flexibility. If fall protection, um, you know, first of all, they say on, on these type of low slope roofs uh, that are four feet or higher, you're not even going to have to wear fall protection if you're just up there inspecting or investigating or assessing a situation uh, before work starts or, or after. But if there is feasible fall protection uh, anchorage points and everything installed there, they expect you to use them. Now, if you find that it's not feasible to use a fall protection system on one of these low slope roofs, uh, you know, in terms of, of tying off, again, the harness and lanyard systems with, with appropriately rated anchorage points, then the employer has flexibility to implement a fall protection plan, and this dovetails with the construction standard. But again, a lot of specifications on this. This isn't a walk in the park for the five guys in a truck company, so they're going to mm-hmm. have to take this seriously. Um, you know, you have to have a written plan. It has to be prepared by a qualified person. It has to be site-specific. Then it has to be put into place and implemented by a competent person. Um, and you're going to have to list every place that fall protection systems can't be used, why it's infeasible. You have, you're you're going to have the burden as the employer to document that. And then you have to list what methods you're going to take to eliminate or reduce fall hazards for workers and put all of that into place. And you even have to identify each worker who is going to be assigned to a location where the fall protection plan is implemented. And, of course, you have to investigate any accidents that might occur. Um, but the good news, and I've heard some really positive feedback on this from some of the mechanical uh, contractors that I do work with, uh, because if you're back more than six feet from the edge of one of these low slope roofs, um, you know, you, you can use a guardrail system, a safety net system, a travel restraint system, a personal fall arrest system. Um, and then if you are, and, and if you are going to be doing this just on an infrequent and temporary basis, and these are important words because they're right in the rule now, uh, it's not an interpretation, then you can use the designated area. And the way that works is that especially if you're going to be 15 feet or more back from the roof edge um, you would you would put one of these systems in place but you don't have to use fall protection systems if the work is infrequent and temporary and you enforce a work rule prohibiting workers from going within 15 feet of the roof edge without fall protection and the way you do that you have to make sure employees stay within this designated area um, and it has to be delineated with a warning line that can hold mm-hmm. at least 200 pounds, and there's some specifications there. It roughly has to be about three feet up above the walking working surface. So it has to be visible. They say it even has to be visible from 25 feet away. Um, and, it, of course, you can't have the warning line within six feet from the roof edge because that would put people in harm's way even setting this up. But it's a great option for a lot of these contractors who really are doing HVAC work, for example, and they're going to be staying in the center uh, or they're installing a skylight or something, they're not anywhere near the edge, and this is going to eliminate their need to be running around up there, you know, potentially tripping over lanyards. Right, right. Um, So I have one other question for you, Adele, um, and it's all about training because we know there's a lot of training that comes along with OSHA um, and some of these uh, uh, worker protections. So the rule requires that employers train the, uh, workers exposed to fall protect fall hazards on how to recognize these fall hazards and minimize fall hazards. 
as well as train on personal fall protection system. Does this sort of training apply to all general industry workplaces or just a few? Well, um, I'm going to say that training applies to all general industry workplaces, but the extensiveness and, and the depth of the training is going to vary depending upon the type of fall hazards you have. For example, in my office, you know, I'm, I'm in a law firm. Um, so for the personnel who stay working in my office, the only real training they would need would be about watching out for slippery surfaces, you know, cleaning up spills, not leaving file cabinet drawers open where someone can walk into them and slip or slip over them, reporting loose carpeting, reporting tiles that might come loose, things of, of that nature, you know, step ladder safety. So the basic things you would deal mm -hmm. with in an office. You know, turn that around, you've got, again, one of these HVAC contractors who's going to be working up 10 stories in the air, putting in an air conditioning unit on a roof. The, the amount of training they're going to have to receive is going to be much more detailed. It's going to have to cover the type of fall protection systems being used, how to put the equipment on, how to inspect it, how to stall it, where to tie it off to, how to check the anchorage points. Um, you know, someone in a warehousing situation is going to have a lot of training on the use of dock boards and chalking of, of equipment uh, and covering hazards that obviously you wouldn't find in a different application. And in the manufacturing facility, you may have all of the above uh, because you're, you're going to have lots of different types of slip, trip, and fall hazards. The bottom line is um, all workers have to be trained um, if they're going to be in a high-hazard situation, um, you have to train them about fall and equipment hazards, and you have to train them on the use of these personal fall protection systems and the other types of fall systems, designated areas, fall protection plans, um, you know, depending upon their exposure to hazards. The training has to be done before they are exposed to hazards, and the deadline for training um, is a bit bit after the effective date. As I mentioned, the first effective date of this is January 17, 2017, but the deadline for, for training or retraining workers as needed is May 17, 2017. The other thing is that the trainer has to be a qualified person, which is defined in the rule. Um, you know, they'll allow you to use interactive training, but you know, it has to cover the source material appropriately, and it has to be uh, designed by uh, and administered by uh, a qualified person. So you're going to be training people, um, you know, whether you're in an office, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're in a factory, or whether you are doing kind of, you know, a ready-mixed concrete operation or right. uh, other type of general industry activities, um, how to identify and minimize fall hazards, how to use the systems properly, how to inspect the equipment, um, and then the training has to be repeated whenever there's a change in work operations or equipment, or the employer thinks that an employee would benefit from more training. And mm -hmm. then the last thing, and this is, again, right in the standard, you have to provide the training in a language and vocabulary that the worker will understand. So if you're giving work instructions uh, in the workplace in Spanish, yep. You have to do the training in, in Spanish. Spanish. Right. Right. So I have, uh, I guess I have one additional question. So I know this, like you mentioned throughout this podcast, that it's a significant rule and, and OSHA has been working back and forth with industry since 1990 and, and revising and taking feedback and public comment. Uh, do you have any last pieces of advice to um, 
potentially give listeners as we enter the new year and this rule goes into effect on January 17th? Well, I mean, now is the time to put some practices in place so that you're not caught unaware of this when the enforcement starts because, you know, to be blunt, um, there's still a long way to go to get the Secretary of Labor uh, approved by Congress, and then they have to designate somebody and appoint them as, pre- as head of OSHA. They have to be approved by the Senate as well. So I don't see a block coming on this rule right away. I think it is going to take effect in January with the additional phased-in dates. And so things like having a good checklist for doing uh, workplace inspections to uh, raise awareness, getting some of the training done. These are simple things you can do now. Um, you know, there is a cost to training, but there's a lot more cost to injuries. And as you noted at, at the top side of this, um, you know, slips, trips, and falls contribute to about 20% of all disabling occupational injuries every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and 15% of all accidental deaths in general industry are due to falls. That's uh, second only to motor vehicles. So uh, a little bit of investment in fall protection uh, up front can really pay benefits in terms of uh, preserving worker health, of course, and also uh, mitigating workers' comp expenses. So inspect your workplaces, do the training, eliminate hazards, you know, do some audits uh, if possible to identify areas where you might have clutter, uh, where you might not have enough clearance, where there might be cables stretching across aisles or walkways where there might be damage to floors, where you might have holes that aren't properly covered, um, you know, where things might have, uh, areas might have bad illumination um, and could present a trip hazard. There's lots of really low-cost improvements that uh, employers can take now uh, before they wait for OSHA to lower the boom on. Right. That's that's great advice. Thanks, Adele. So that's all we have for this uh, EHS on Tap episode. Thanks again to Adele for taking the time to provide us with her knowledge on the OSHA matters. If listeners would like to follow up with Adele, she can be reached at safetylawyer at AOL.com. All right, that's it. If you would like to learn more about safety or hear Adele speak on the issue we discussed today, join BLR at Safety Summit 2017, the nation's premier Workplace Safety Management Conference, which takes place April 3rd to 5th, 2017 in Austin, Texas. The three-day conference features many pre-conference workshops, keynotes, TED-style talks, and breakout sessions on thought-provoking issues, such as the one we just heard today. Uh, You can learn more at safetysummit.blr.com. If you like this podcast, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and rate it and review it. I'd be greatly appreciative. Thanks for listening, everyone.